Matthew 27, verses 51 through 56. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake... And the things that were happening became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Turn over to John chapter 19 with me. We'll read verses 31 through 37. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus... When they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture Not a bone of him shall be broken. And another, again, another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty and holy and majestic word. The opportunity to learn more about you today. We pray that you would teach us and grow us more into the image of your Son. We pray for any in this place that are still dead in their sins and trespasses, those who are still enemies of yours, we pray that you would give them eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, that they would see their sin, see their unworthiness, and cry out for mercy and grace. We're thankful that those who do cry out to you, who call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. We pray you would do that work in their hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There are just some things that are worth repeating. Some truths that demand extra airtime. There are some subjects that evoke our deepest interest. And they compel us to want to learn more, to study further, to make new discoveries. There are some facts that we will never grow tired of relaying to others. One of the reasons why I continue teaching chemistry here at our school is that the subject never goes dry to me. There are always some new things to be explored. There are some reactions which now I have witnessed many, many times, and they're still, for me, filled with wonder and excitement. For God has made an incredible world. And that world attests to his intelligence, to his power, and to his beauty. Some stories never get old. 
There are classic works of literature that have been read and celebrated for centuries. And should the Lord tarry, they will be celebrated and read for centuries yet to come. There are events in history which must be remembered. And we're diligent to not let the next generation forget those things. Some events are so life-altering that we can't help but talk about them over and over and over again. There are some pieces of news that we just can't wait to share with other people. I've mentioned before the joy and excitement that my now wife and I have experienced when we got engaged. I remember when she had said yes after I proposed to her, how much excitement flooded our hearts and minds as we couldn't wait to tell anyone that was around us whether or not they cared at all. But of all the events that are worth remembering, of all of the subjects that are worth further study, of all of the stories that are worthy to be retold over and over and over again, there is nothing that compares to the story of Jesus. And certainly, every story of Jesus must climax at the cross. This event changes everything. We must make ongoing testimony regarding it. So in a sermon entitled Ongoing Testimony, this morning I'd like for us to consider the testimony of three witnesses on the scene when Jesus gave up his spirit. When Jesus died, three categories of witnesses that were present that bore witness, that gave testimony as to what had transpired that day. The first is the witness of inanimate things or non-living things. We'll then consider the witness of people and thirdly we'll consider the witness of God's word. So first of all, the witness of inanimate things or non-living things. The first of these is the veil. The veil is torn asunder. Now there's some debate as to exactly which veil it is that tore in the temple, as there were a couple of them. Theologically speaking, we would answer all curtains, all veils were torn apart when Jesus died upon the cross. We know that in Jesus, the wall that separated Jews and Gentiles was demolished. Jesus Christ brings together people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But on the literal level, especially if you read the book of Hebrews, chapters 9, chapter 10, chapter 6, we're led to believe that the veil that was torn was the veil that separated the holy place, the place where the priests could go, only the priests could go, And the holy of holies, or the most holy place, the place where only the high priest could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. Edersheim, describing that veil, the the veil before the holy of holies, described it as such. It was some 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. The thickness of the veil was about the palm of a man's hand. These veils were so heavy that in the exaggerated language of the time, it needed 300 priests to manipulate it. And it is this veil that was torn in two, ripped in half from top to bottom. This is not some minor fraying. It was a complete and utter uncovering. You see, a veil only performs its function as it maintains its integrity, a rip from top to to bottom would completely expose what was before to remain out of vision and out of contact. But now that veil had been ripped from top to bottom, exposing that which before was kept away from people. 
The Greek word schizo here, from which we get schism, only happens here in Matthew, and it happens twice in rapid succession. It describes the tearing of the veil, schizo, and it also describes the splitting of rocks, schizo. Split asunder, ripped apart. And note the specificity here. The veil was ripped from top to bottom, literally from above to below. This was the hand of God. In men's group on Wednesday nights, we just finished a discussion of the Tower of Babel and man's sinful and pathetic attempt to build a tower into the heavens in order that they might not be scattered abroad as God had commanded them to spread out and multiply and fill the earth. And also that they might make a name for themselves. Yet John Piper points out the irony of this project when God comes down to see their tower into the heavens, right? He who is in the heavens comes down to see their pathetic tower that they're building supposedly to the heavens. And when he does, he confuses their language and scatters them over the face of the earth. You see, man cannot make his own way to heaven. God must come down to us. This God did by sending his son Jesus to rescue us. John 6.38, Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. God would now make a new covenant through Jesus' blood, granting us unprecedented access into his holy presence by the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, normally at the end of a play, the curtain closes. But here at this climactic moment, at the finale of Jesus' life, a curtain opens. The tearing of the veil would quite literally throw open the most holy place to all men. This was the place where only the high priest entered once a year to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat that was positioned above the Ark of the Covenant in order to make atonement for the sins of people in accordance with Leviticus 16. And that priest, before going in, would have to sacrifice for himself and prayerfully not sin while in the presence of, of the Lord. Now that whole sacrificial system is seen to be what it was intended to look forward to. The shadows have now given way to reality. No more sacrifices need be made. May I even more clarify, can be made. Hebrews 10, we had this read this morning, verses 1 through 4. For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise it would have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of their sins. But in those sacrifices there is the reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to ever take away sins. Then verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 14. For by one offering Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice. (laughs) He's both the one bringing the sacrifice that from then on would no longer need any sacrifices. And he is also the one high priest, the great high priest. 
The temple veil being torn asunder means that the temple, which was structured to keep people out of God's immediate presence for their own safety, for what sinner has the right or ability to enter into God's presence? But that veil, this whole system had become obsolete. The God-man, Jesus Christ, has now reconciled sinful man with holy God by dying in the place of sinners, bearing God's wrath on their account, removing their guilt and their shame, and granting them his perfect righteousness. Jesus' death brought atonement for all men who repent and believe in him. Men may now come boldly to the throne of grace through Jesus' atoning death. Nothing like this has existed since the Garden of Eden, right? Since the Garden of Eden, nothing like this had existed. Hebrews 10, 19-22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Atonement was made once for all. Once for all sin, once for all time. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all. For all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The veils ripping from top to bottom was God saying, I have now made access where you did not have it, I have now made it once for all, once for all cleansing. Daniel Doriani makes an interesting statement, which I think hopefully all of us can identify with. Adults would clap and sing if they could wash the dishes, the clothes, the floor, one time, and be done forever by a washing so definitive that no one would ever need to wash a particular dish or floor or shirt again. How many of you would say amen? That would be a wondrous reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in the home, we all know this is a fantasy. But spiritually, that is precisely what Jesus did. He offered one sacrifice to cleanse sin forever. The veil is torn. Secondly, the ground trembles. The ground trembles. This is the geological counterpart to the astronomical phenomenon that they're already experiencing. Remember, at high noon... The sky goes dark. And for three hours, utter darkness falls on the land. The second three hours that Jesus is on the cross, utter pitch darkness. And now, as Jesus gives up his spirit, the land groans. The land groans. Judgment has fallen. And the entire cosmos is affected. At Jesus' death, the ground shakes. A supernatural earthquake occurs. The earth shakes, and we're told that rocks split in two. Jesus' death was, to play on words, earth-shaking. I love the words by Keith and Kristen Getty in their wonderful song, The Power of the Cross. Now the daylight flees. Now the ground beneath quakes as its maker 
bows his head. Curtain torn in two. Dead are raised to life. Finished the victory cry. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame. Bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. You see, the earth was cursed as a result of Adam's sin. Creation groans as it longs to be delivered from its bondage, Romans 8.21. Christ's death had implications for the whole earth. Even the rocks cry out. And one day, the earth will be made new. There will be a glorious new heavens and new earth. A glorious recreation. But the rocks cannot be silent as their maker bows his head. Thirdly, the tombs crack open. The tombs crack open. With the earthquake, we're told that graves are said to be opened up. And three days later, some saints who had fallen asleep in death before Jesus' crucifixion are raised from the dead and make appearances to the disciples at that point. Matthew provides us with no explanation of the delay between the opening of the graves and their appearance days later nor what happened to them afterward, whether they died again or if they were taken to heaven, we are not told. But the point is this, that God's power and grace operated in this way as a testimony to the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection are merely the first fruits of what is yet to come. His death has implications for everyone else. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Jesus' death has implications for all of those who trust in him. The key to new life would come through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's Jesus' death that defeats the power of sin and death. His death wins our resurrection, for his death crushes the power of death. The death of death in the death of Christ, as a famous Puritan work is titled. Knox Chamberlain said, In raising these bodies, God pledges that all of the redeemed will one day receive glorious bodies like that of Jesus himself. The tearing of the curtain in the temple promises the deepest fellowship between God and his covenant people. To that end, God will not allow saints who have died to remain disembodied souls. At history's consummation, their souls and their bodies will be reunited for the full enjoyment of the Holy Trinity throughout all eternity. We've noticed the witness of a curtain, the witness of the ground, the witness of graves. Now let's consider the witness of people. The witness of people. We begin with the centurion. The centurion confesses. We see this in Matthew 27, verse 54. Now, standing guard over and watching all of these events unfold, this centurion would have been the commanding officer on the scene. And he would have had other guards with him that are just making sure that the process of crucifixion goes as they are planning, or so they think. But as they're watching these things happen, we're told that these men become extremely scared. The words literally are exceedingly frightened. 
when they observe all of the supernatural phenomenon that are going on in connection with Jesus' death, they've seen the whole sky go pitch black. And obviously, if we know that after three hours, this stopped, that means also after Jesus gave up his spirit, it became light again. They've now felt a massive earthquake go through the area. Graves split open. Men are scared to death. Beyond this, the centurion must have likely have heard Jesus pray things like, when he was being crucified to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He also heard the taunts of the people. If you're the Son of God, come on down from the cross. He also obviously observed the sign that was posted in multiple languages above Jesus, which declared him as the king of the Jews. The centurion and the men that were with him had most likely overheard the accusations brought against Jesus while he was under trial. This centurion might have even participated in some of the mocking. He might have been one of the ones delivering some of the scourgings, maybe spit on Jesus, perhaps beat him in some way. But now, having witnessed all these happenings, the centurion must firmly come down to admit that Jesus is as he said he was. Luke says that the centurion says, He glorified God and said, surely this man was righteous. Or another way of translating that is, surely this man was innocent. He had not done anything wrong. Which, by the way, is yet another time in which Jesus' moral purity and innocence is upheld. Remember? How many times does this have to be done? Matthew and Mark record him as saying, truly, surely this was the Son of God. Of God. We can be sure that this centurion had been witness to many deaths, but no one ever died in the manner that Jesus died. And it evokes belief in this Gentile. This is particularly climactic for Mark's gospel, since his gospel was most likely written to a Roman audience. Here is a Roman authority bearing witness to Christ's innocence and his nature of being God's son. This climactic moment is, has huge theological importance. How many times has Jesus' deity been proclaimed throughout the Gospels? God the Father has twice declared Jesus his son. When did it happen? That is baptism and his transfiguration. Yeah. Baptism and transfiguration, we hear God the Father saying from heaven, this is my son, this is my beloved son. The demons recognize Jesus as God's son. Remember, Jesus silences them, but they recognize that Jesus is God's son. Jesus said so about himself both explicitly and implicitly a multitude of times in the Gospels. The disciples have hailed him as God's son. Peter included this in his identification when Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It served as the basis for Jesus' condemnation before the Sanhedrin. It was used as ammunition to mock Jesus while he's on the cross. But what the centurion says is, the charge is true. He did claim to be equal with God. The centurion bearing witness to this fact upon observing Jesus' Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is not the only centurion we come across in Jesus' ministry, is it? How can we not remember...
the one in Matthew 8. What a unique situation that was. A centurion who asked for Jesus' aid to heal one of his servants. And remember, as, the, as Jesus starts coming towards his house, the centurion hears of it, and he sends out more people to tell Jesus, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you in my house. I also understand how this works. I'm a man of authority. I have people underneath me. I tell them to do something, they do it. That's how it works. Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. Just say it and it will happen. Jesus, upon hearing this, heals the man's servant. And he says, faith like this I haven't seen in all of Jerusalem. We see a centurion bearing witness that Jesus is the Son of God. We then notice crowds. Actually, this only happens in Luke's account, Luke 23, verse 48. We have a quick little descriptor that says that the crowds returned home and beat their chests. The crowds returned home and beat their chests. They leave the area, but not without some amount of impact. Now, typically, beating one's chest involves some sort of sorrow or grief. We don't know if this was a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow, though. But it is quite possible that some of those who were in attendance that day were also in attendance when Peter, sometime later, would indict them with his sermon, in which he would say this, God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And we're told there, on the day of Pentecost, that those who were listening were pierced to the heart, and they asked, what must we do? And after they were told the gospel, some of those people in attendance at the cross that, that earlier on that earlier occasion might have been among those 3,000 souls that were saved on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. We also see women in attendance. There's some women standing at a distance, and we see this in Matthew 27, verses 55 through 56, as well as the parallel passages. I'm sure there was shock and awe among these women. They're trying to make sense of all this. A lot of it is going to become a whole lot more clear in a very short time. But I already spoke about the identity of these women last time we were together, so I'm not going to spend any more time with that. But one thing I do want to just note is it's interesting that these ladies, not only these who are named, but also were told many other women who followed and ministered to Jesus were also present. It is a fascinating detail that were provided in the Gospels. At a time when all but one disciple are not to be found at the cross we see a bunch of ladies who had followed and ministered to Jesus. I just find this a fascinating little, little moment in which we're reminded, not only are Jews and Gentiles invited and brought into one family, but male and female are as well. United in Christ. Given real purpose in his kingdom agenda. These same women are also important to the narrative. Because among these women would be those who would serve as witnesses, not only to Jesus' death, but to his resurrection. These women who would go out to Jesus' grave and see that his body was no longer there, and be visited by post-resurrection Jesus, would be important witnesses to the story, right? They saw Jesus die. They knew he was dead. This is not hearsay. They were there. And later on, we'll see that they'll be there when Jesus rises again from the dead. Very, very important witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. 
And then the one disciple who is there, John. John testifies. And we see in John 19, verse 35, we'll go over to John 19 now. He says, I speak the truth, and I know what I say is true, and I testify to these things that you might believe. Let's just break that down for just a second. It's a great definition of what it means to be a witness for Jesus. What's involved in being an ambassador for Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to share our faith? This is what it means. To speak the truth, to know what you believe is true, and to speak in such a way that people might believe. Right? To speak the truth, to believe and to know in your heart that what you're saying is absolutely true, and to share that truth with others that they might believe. There it is. What a great definition of Christian testimony. So we've considered the testimony of inanimate objects, things. We've considered the testimony of people. Now I'd like to look at God's providence in these events. The happenings surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus are undeniably God's work, as all events ultimately are his work. But lastly, let's hear the witness of God's word. The witness of God's word. In order to hear this, we need to start with the Jews. And we see this in John chapter 19, starting in verse 31. Again, we're confronted with the horrendous duplicity of the Jews. These guys are scrupulous when it comes to matters of the technicalities of the law. Remember, they were the ones that wouldn't enter the praetorium, the Roman courtyard, when Jesus is being judged for fear of contamination and becoming unclean for the Passover. They also won't accept money back from Judas. When Judas says, I betrayed innocent blood, Jesus isn't actually guilty of anything. And when he tries to bring this back to the temple, they say, we can't take it. It's blood money. How dare you bring it back to us? It's blood money. What's it to us? You know, they had no problem paying Judas to betray Jesus. They put on a mockery of trials in order to fabricate some sort of justifiable reason to put Jesus to death. They march out their string of false witnesses whose testimonies don't agree. They make false accusations about Jesus to Pilate. They pretend to be loyal citizens of Caesar and patriots of Rome, none of which are they at all. And, and Pilate knows it. And now, out of concern for the high holy day, they request that the men who are crucified be hastened to their death so that they might be taken down and removed. You see, the Sabbath for them would begin at sundown of Friday. So they want this taken care of before the Sabbath occurs. Which again, is just you see this tremendous fulfillment of prophecy. In order for Jesus to be dead in the ground for three days, there has to be dead on Friday. There has to then be Saturday, and there has to be Sunday. And so we see they're trying to hasten this and put these men down into the ground. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 speaks to this reality. Listen, this is probably what they're using as their guidance here. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. They don't want to risk defilement on the Sabbath. Especially when the Sabbath that they're considering is the Sabbath that happens during the festival of Passover. 
they want to make sure that this defilement is put away. They're concerned about this. And meanwhile, they reject their rightful king, their one and only savior. They care about the land not being defiled, but give little care to the defilement of their own hearts and their own lives. I wonder how often this is still the case today. How many people care about things that don't ultimately have the significance of where are their own hearts in relationship with the Lord? This brings us to consider the governor, Pilate. Now, in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 19, Pilate isn't specifically listed as having given a decision, but we know what his decision is because in verse 32, the soldiers begin doing what the Jews asked Pilate to do. Once again, here, Pilate, although he he desires to be left out of the matter, is implicated in the actions here taken against Jesus. Now, no doubt, I'm sure that Pilate is fine to comply with this request, for he would rather have this whole embarrassing affair disposed of as soon as possible. Remember, he didn't want to make a judgment on the thing in the first place. So I'm sure he's more than happy to oblige this request. Then come to the soldiers. The soldiers approached the men on either side of Jesus by breaking their legs into pieces. And the purpose for this is that once a man's legs were broken while crucified, his ability to lift himself up by use of his legs becomes unable, right? They become unable to do that any longer. And as someone who's dying in crucifixion dies of asphyxiation, cannot breathe anymore as the weight of their body is pulled down and they can't lift up anymore to breathe. And so by breaking their knees, other than also just being gruesome and, and painful to the ones who are being subjected to all of this, it would hasten their death. Sometimes people would stay on crosses for two to three days before they died. So all of a sudden the Jews are real concerned about this piece of a high holy day. They want this all taken care of. And Pilate says, okay. The, the guards come in. They break the knees of both of the, break the legs of both of the individuals on either side of Jesus. But then when they come to Jesus, as they had already witnessed earlier, Jesus is already dead. Now, for a man to die with only six hours on the cross was highly unusual. Like I said before, they usually live for much longer than that. Remember, Jesus gave up his life. The cross did not take Jesus' life. No one could take Jesus' life from him. He gave his life. And these soldiers, trained in executing people, knew death when they saw it. So breaking Jesus' legs would be utterly unnecessary However, just to ensure that Jesus was indeed dead, suddenly one of the soldiers picks up a spear and thrusts it into Jesus' side. And immediately we're told that blood and water flow out. There's been lots of discussion about this blood and water thing. I think D.A. Carson gives a very balanced perspective of it. Medical experts disagree on what was pierced. The two most common theories are, A, the spear pierced Jesus' heart, And the blood from the heart mingled with the fluid from the pericardial sac to produce the flow of blood and water. Or B, by contrast, it's been argued that the fluid from the pericardial sac could not so readily escape from the body by such a wound. It would fill up the chest cavity, filling the space around the lung and then oozing into the lung itself through the wound that the spear made. In tests performed on cadavers, it has been shown that where a chest has been severely injured but without penetration, hemorrhagic fluid, up to two liters of it, 
gathers between the lining of the ribcage and the lining of the lung. This separates into a clearer serum at the top and a deep red layer at the bottom. Now, if the chest cavity were then pierced at the bottom, both layers would then flow out. Now, the text itself doesn't give us these sorts of medical descriptions as to what happened. So what happened there is not dependent on our ability medically to describe exactly what was going on there. The point is this. Jesus really died. Against all docetic theologies that say Jesus only appeared to be a man, or all swooning theories that Jesus just kind of passed out and appeared to die but didn't really die, Jesus really was a man. And he really died. No Roman soldier would allow a crucified victim to be alive when they took him down off the cross. There is no way they would allow that to happen. And the spear thrust makes it all the more plain. The spear thrust didn't kill Jesus. It merely manifested the fact that he was already dead. And his death was real. And so was Jesus' resurrection. Were it not a real death, there would be no real sacrifice for our sin. And there would be no real hope of forgiveness and eternal life. His death is made very plainly evident in this. But not only that, but we see here the testimony of the scriptures. We see how all this comes together. The soldiers had been given their order to break the knees, break the legs of those there, and they had given, been given no order by any means to, to spear someone, to thrust some spear into someone's side. That was not an order they had been given. They had been in order to break the person's legs. Yet even the disobedience of these soldiers was itself a fulfillment of prophecy. These happened, John tells us, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Look at verses 36 and 37. A bone of him will not be broken. Now, some point to Psalm 34:20, where God is portrayed as the deliverer of the righteous man, and there it says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, in that context of Psalm 34, he's trying to say like the, the man is kept intact. <laughs> so not even a bone is broken. Also, the further context of that particular psalm is that he doesn't die. You know, <laughs> the man is alive, he's kept safe, he's kept free from harm, even the breaking of his bones. So as a result of that, I actually lean towards another thing that I think John is pointing to. Perhaps what John has in mind is descriptions regarding the Passover lamb. Exodus 12, verse 46. Description of how the people were to partake of the Passover. It shall be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. Again, repeated in Numbers 9, 12. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. I think this is what John's pointing out. He finds particularly interesting that Jesus, the Passover lamb, not one bone is broke in him. The New Testament picks up on the same language. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump. For in fact just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus. I think this is what John's pointing to. He says, here's the Passover lamb. 
Not one bone of his body broken. Here is the one that the Passover was pointing towards. It's Jesus. And then he says, and then again, another scripture says, so, so the fact that the guards disobey a direct order by not crushing Jesus' legs is a fulfillment of prophecy by not breaking his bones. And then he says, and then further, their decision to spear Jesus in the side is itself also a fulfillment of prophecy. This one, there's not really any debate as to what's being pointed to here. It's Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Again, in particular context in Zechariah 12, there's this idea that there's a king who is God's representative and he's being spurned. And what's so fascinating about the text is that God here says, your treatment of this king is treatment against me. He's my representative. So it's like as if you've done it against me. It takes on so much fuller meaning when we see this as God in the flesh, God's own son, Jesus, literally being pierced for his people that grace and mercy might flow out. It is this wound that Jesus tells Thomas, here I am, reach out your fingers, see my hands, reach here, put your hand into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. The same thing that Revelation 1-7 picks up, the same connection between Zechariah 12 and this event, saying, behold, he's coming with the clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And from this wound, we're told, come water and blood. A.W. Pink says, That blood and water should issue together, yet separated was clearly a miracle. The water and the blood came forth to bear witness that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The water and the blood are God's witnesses to his Son and to the life that sinners may find in him. There's been a long history of interpretation of the water and blood here as being references to baptism in the Lord's Supper. Many have made a big deal of that here, saying that the blood is also picturing the Lord's Supper and the water here is picturing Christian baptism. Um, I think better is just the general idea behind the shedding of blood and the flow of water. What are these things symbolic of throughout the Bible? Well, the remission of sins. There is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Well, what about water? Well, it's connection with the removal of our filth, the removal of washing away our guilt. Blood to remove our punishment. Water to remove our filth. This is given to pardon our sins and deliver us from sin's power and pollution. You see, Jesus is both our pardoner and our sanctifier. He's the one who forgives us, and he's the one that makes us clean. He saves us while we're yet sinners, but he doesn't leave us that way. He makes us more like himself. He saves and he heals. He pardons and he makes holy. And how can we not think of the wonderful text in the Old Testament when the people of Israel grumble because they're out in the wilderness and there's no water. And remember God tells Moses, assemble the elders, bring your staff, And then he says, bring down the staff on the rock. The rock splits open and waters flood into the wilderness and the people are nourished by it. 1 Corinthians 10, 4, Paul says, that rock was Christ. He says, the rock that was there in the wilderness was Christ. 
When the water poured out of the rock, what do we think of Jesus? Well, from his side flowed both water and blood. This story finds its fullest fulfillment in Jesus' death on the cross. For when Israel should have been the one bearing the strike of the rod there in the wilderness, instead, God takes it upon himself. And so it is for us. We ought to deserve the blow of God's justice, but instead God sends a substitute, a mediator, the rock, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is pierced, out from his side flow both blood and water, both to cleanse us and to refresh us by his grace and mercy alone. Again, in Zechariah, in chapter 12 is this reference. Then you just go down a few more verses to chapter 13, verse 1, and we read this. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David. And for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. A fountain will be opened, and it will cleanse sin and impurity. What does that? Well, we know it's not the blood of goats and calves. What does that? Only Jesus. Augustus Top Lady in his famous hymn, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Listen. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. What we've looked at this morning were those immediate testimonies given by witnesses at the death of Jesus. But added to these testimonies are all the lives of countless Christians who have lived and died for Christ's renown ever since then. The lives of Christians have turned the world upside down. And it hasn't been through military conquest. And it hasn't been through some political maneuvering or political regimes. But humble, loving, sacrificial service and testimony to the Lamb who was slain and rose again. Some of those have gone on to be with the Lord and have sealed their own testimonies for Christ with their own blood. Being martyrs for Jesus. Dying for Jesus. Others have faithfully attested to God's greatness and goodness, most clearly seen in Jesus Christ, and have died in other means. But how thankful we are that each of these have borne witness to Jesus. We ourselves, who know Jesus, are the beneficiaries of others who have borne witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. There is no story more essential. There is no point in history more definitive than the crucifixion and resurrection Jesus, how thankful we are that those before us have borne witness to him. So we too must make an ongoing testimony regarding the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me close by asking you the question, do you know Jesus? And by that I don't mean merely know about him, some facts about him, but are you properly related to Jesus Christ? Have you confessed your sins before him? Have you recognized his worthiness and your unworthiness? Do you see your own spiritual bankruptcy? Do you see your attempts to be righteous kind of like the Tower of Babel, a feeble attempt to try to make your way to God? And otherwise, it's, it's useless. You can't do it. What you need is for God to come to you and praise the Lord, he's done that. That's the gospel. 
that while there's bad news, you're a sinner and worthy of death and hell, there's good news because God sent his son Jesus to save sinners. He laid down his life to redeem us. Have you drawn near to the cross? Have you experienced the benefits of the water and blood that flowed from Jesus' side? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you recognize that he died the death that sinful man deserves and bore God's wrath so that sinners like you would be saved? The good news is if you'll call on the name of the Lord, he will save you. Will you do that today? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wonderful joy of knowing your son Jesus and knowing you as a result. Thank you that that veil was torn top to bottom. Thank you that you have made a way where we could not. Thank you that you have offered a once-for-all sacrifice in your Son. And Jesus, thank you not only for dying, but for rising again, conquering sin in the grave. Thank you that we now have hope in the joy of eternal life. I pray for those in this place who don't presently I pray that you would draw them even now in these moments, that they would confess their sin before you, that you would save them for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. I pray in Jesus' name.